0: Good morning please join me in the prayer for guidance. Father, open our hearts and minds by the power of your holy Spirit that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with glad hearts what you say to us today. Our scripture this morning is Matthew 538 through 48. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said... "'Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. "'But I tell you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you "'that you may be children of your Father in heaven. "'He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good "'and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. "'If you love only those who love you, "'what reward will you get? "'Are not even the tax collectors doing that? "'And if you greet only your own people,' What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Lisa. In our scripture text today, Jesus proclaims those words that uh, I think are disturbing, the words that can uh, lead to a lifetime of a misunderstanding about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is those words that we just heard, be perfect as your father and heaven is perfect. That's translated some different ways, uh, and that's going to be sort of a key to this morning's message. Uh, everything leading up to that is Jesus actually giving us an illustration of God's perfection, how God is perfect in that he not only loves those who love him, but he loves those who are his enemies. He not only uh, gives uh, to the good, but he he makes his fall to, right, to, to uh, or his reign to fall on the good and on the evil ones. Uh, he sets up a series of things there where he says, "You've heard it said this, but I'm telling you this," and he raises it to a higher level. So there is a sense of perfectionism there that can haunt us, and I, and I want to address that this morning, uh, and, and I'll just share with you what it says in the common English version of the Bible, which I'm using here this morning, and it says, "To be complete." Be complete as God is complete in his love for others. I want you to think about that for a little bit. What is the difference? You see, when we hear the word perfection there, the the original word in the Greek, and I don't usually throw Greek out in, in sermons. I just think it's pretentious to do that. But it's very important here that we know what the word that's translated in the King James and many other versions is perfect. What that meant to the Greeks when they heard it. It's teleos. And that word has the idea of maturity, completeness, reaching the end of the journey. When you get there and your goal is attained. So be complete or be mature. Or or or, or be at that place, that standard for which you, you you have longed to be. Be there, be there as your Father is there in his completeness. And certainly we know that God, by definition, God is a complete and holy and righteous God. That there is no stain within God. And so this idea of perfectionism uh, is one that I have uh, uh, struggled with uh, all of my life. Uh, As a child, uh, I had uh, a father who I considered to be perfect in every way, and by perfection, what do we mean? Without fault, without error, always doing what is right, always choosing what is right. That's how we see perfection. It's a little bit different from maturity or completeness. There is a sense of one error removes you from perfection. It's an all or nothing sort of thing. You're either 100% there, or you're just not there. And so I struggled with this as a child, uh, and my father, it wasn't that he went around proclaiming he was perfect. He was an extremely humble person, but that was part of his perfection to me. Uh, and it seemed like the more I tried to be perfect, the more mistakes I made along the way. And, and I, and I, and I kind of interpreted that in my young mind as being flaws in me, ways in which I wasn't measuring up to who my father was and to whom my father in heaven was. An example of what happened uh, when I was six years old, this is just one of many times that, uh, that I failed to meet that standard of perfection that I thought I should be, be at. Uh, I was out in the field behind her house, there were these big fields behind her house and trees, and, and uh, it was this time of year, and there was this beautiful flower that was blooming at this time of year. And um, it's kind of a golden yellow color, uh, small little flowers on it. The bees love it, by the way. This is where they're getting uh, uh, their nectar this time of year. It's very important for them to make it through the winter with this. So I'm out there, and I said, this would be great. I'm going to take these home, and I took them home, and I found an empty Coke bottle, and I filled it with water, and I put them down into it, and I set it on the dinner table. Both of my parents were gone. They work, and they return home, and here my flowers are there. I was so excited, so excited what they were going to say the praise I was going to receive. You are the perfect child. Only to see my dad's face. He was extremely allergic to goldenrod. And I had said it right there in the house. You see, so it seemed like no matter what I did, eventually it ended up with the peach tree stick or a branch or or a uh, uh, the belt, uh, something uh, to punish me. And many times I, w- I was punished for things I didn't do because people just assumed I had done it. That's true. Dad came over and apologized to my dad that he had accused me of something when he found out his son had done it, broken a window. My dad had already whipped me. Can you imagine how bad my dad felt about that? So I, I struggled. I have struggled with this all my life, and thank God for Jesus Christ has been there to help me with the struggle with perfectionism because when you, when you believe you have to be perfect, eventually you don't want to hear criticism. You understand that? That's a weakness. We should always be open to criticism and to hear it and to interpret it and to accept it and to work on things when it's legitimate criticism. But when you want to be perfect, it's hard to hear criticism. It's hard to take that. And, and, and so I have, I have really struggled with this. And I've struggled it, with it in terms of my relationship with God. And, and, and going uh, into the early part, I was baptized when I was 10, and it was probably three years I went about being a follower of Jesus Christ as, as, as a rule book and trying to do everything perfectly. As a little child, I can remember uh, I was probably five, six years old, and I got it in my head that if I open my eyes during the prayers at church, that God was going to punish me, and the prayers would not be heard, and so I would sit there, and my eyes would be all squeezed up, and you know, sometimes the prayers are really long, but my eyes are squeezed up, and, and, and you know, and I've got my hands clasped, and my knuckles are turning white, and I just was so intense about this. Y- y- y'all, Y'all are saying, boy, I'm glad I didn't know Bob back then. I'm just as bad now, but you know, I had this thing and so I'm baptized and I come out and and in that church you know one Sunday I was I was was really I've told you all this story before but you know I was terrified by a sermon that I was wasn't going to heaven that my parents were going to heaven I wasn't my brother and sister were going to heaven I wasn't because I was too bad and so I ran up the aisle and I got baptized like they just take you right up and put you into the pool it's right there in the church and you know, they always kept it warmed up. They had a little heater on the thing and all just in case. And so I go up there and I'm baptized. I didn't have any change of clothes or anything. I just come out and I'm sopping wet. And uh, and then I think, oh, I didn't plan ahead on this, did I? So all my sins are washed away. If Jesus comes right now, I'm going to heaven. But I know I'm going to sin pretty soon. So I'm like praying, Lord, Come quickly. <laughs> come quickly. And then I literally went out, it was July 15th, the middle of the summer, we're on school break, and I literally went out the next morning into my yard, and instead of playing with my friends like I normally do, because they would drag me into deprivation and sin, I knew it, that, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be smoking under the, in the crawl space of the house or doing something, so I I uh, went and sat under an oak tree for three days. I literally did that. And then finally, after three days, I said, well... <laughs> It's apparent Jesus may not be coming back that soon. And I went and played with my friends. And I'd get back into sinning. And then I'd feel terrible about it. And I'd ask God to forgive me. And I'd sin. And I'd ask him to forgive me. And I kept going back and forth with this. I'm saved. I'm not saved. Saved. Not saved sort of thing going on. It's, it's, it's not a good place to be. Then when I'm 13, when I'm 13, I go to a youth retreat at Camp Lamava. In, in Front Royal. It was our uh, church that I grew up in, a very legalistic church, by the way. And so perfectionism just fit right into this church. You have to be perfect. Uh, they, uh, at the church camp, they had an African-American Bible student from Northeastern Christian College, one of the church's colleges, and he came to, pre- to preach. And I heard a message I had never heard before in my life He was talking about the the story of the prodigal son, which most everybody is familiar with that story and how it goes. The the youngest son, there's an oldest son and a youngest son, but we'll focus on the youngest son. He uh, decides that he is tired of living under his father's rule. And he's going to live life the way it should be lived, the way he thinks it should be lived. So he asks his father for his inheritance in advance, which in in the Jewish system, you could do that. You didn't have to wait until your father died to inherit. You could take it now. And so the father gives it to him. And he goes off. He goes off into a far place, as far as he can get from his father. And he wastes all that money on wild living and drinking and, and all manner of uh, of irresponsible living. And finally he ends up, he's blown through all of his money, he ends up living with the pigs. And there he is with the pigs. And, you know, you're Jewish and pigs, it's not a good thing. Here I am talking about this and I got pork rinds right here. You know, this was not kosher. This was not the way it was supposed to be. But that's how far he has gone down. In the mind of the people listening to Jesus, he has gone as far down as a a person could go. And he's even eating the food that's being given to the pigs. That's all the food he has. And then finally, it says he came to his senses. And he said, I have a father. And this young African-American preacher keeps saying that over and over and over. I have a father. I have a father. And the young man hopes that this father will accept him back and he has no hope that the father will accept him back gladly or as his son, but maybe he will take me back as one of his servants. And he begins his journey home. And as he's, he's going down this road, and I imagine this, this uh, dusty road or muddy road today, it would be a muddy road. His father isn't back in the house writing down, if my son ever comes back, here are the things he must do to make up what he has done. This is the way he must live in the future if he is going to be allowed to live in my home. This is the tough love I'm giving him. And when he comes and knocks on that door, I'm going to make him stew a little bit. I'm going to make him wait for me. Because he has to know this isn't how we live here. These aren't my rules. Folks, that was the Father, God, who I was serving. This was the Father God who I thought wanted me to be perfect, who had all the rules out in the Bible set out for me, who would punish me every time I did something wrong. But the young man just kept saying, "I have a father. I have a father." When he comes down that road, his father isn't inside the house writing down conditions for his acceptance, but rather he is out on the front of the house as he would have been doing every day looking to see if his son was coming home. And when he sees his son, he doesn't wait for him. He doesn't stand there with his arms crossed. Well, I told you so. You think you can come back, be part of this family so easily? That's not the attitude. Instead, he runs and embraces his son. And he gives orders for for clean white clothes to be brought, a a robe to be brought to his son to wear, and and rings for his fingers, and kill the fatted calf, and let's have a party for my son who was lost. He's found. He's home. I got to tell you, I was there, maybe 40 other kids, and we're there, and we're listening to this guy. And it all just broke through all of a sudden. Three years after my baptism... There was grace. I saw a very different picture of God. That was the day I was saved. (laughs) I was saved. And I realized, I don't have to be perfect. A little bit of a lighter note, and I got to tell you, my blood sugar right now I need I need to eat a donut and I hope you'll you'll take my apologies. I need a little water for it to go down. Go to the next screen, Clint. Go to the next screen if you can. It's taking its time. It's frozen there. There you go. Okay, because <laughs> my hand's starting to stick to this donut. I worked at the Donut Den. I was a, I went on after that. Five years later, I'm down in Nashville, Tennessee, or six years later, after that experience. And I'm a Bible major at David Lipscomb College. And uh, don't you love that name, Granny White Pike? Only in Tennessee do they give things names like that. You notice the old abbreviation, T-E-N-N, proof that it's going back a ways. This was stamp, is stamped in my... Um, In my Bible that I had at that time, I worked at the Donut Den. It was a brand new place. Today, it's like this great donut place in Nashville that everybody goes to. But when I was working there, it was just starting. And I remember the young owner who was a graduate, a recent graduate of Lipscomb, hired me. And he gave me about a 30-minute class on how to make donuts. And I was left there on this midnight shift. We were open late making donuts and when people come in, I was selling them foot-long chili dogs and, and drinks. And, and I'm there. And, uh, you know, when you're a Bible major, you got to be thinking about everything in terms of theological terms. And so I'm there with my little stick in that big vat of grease, deep-frying these donuts, flipping them with the stick. You'd flip them with the stick. Then I'd take the stick through the holes, and I'd get them out of there. Uh, nothing fancy about this place, and I gotta say, I really make good donuts. Even though I don't like eating donuts today, I'm only doing this for the sermon, folks. But let me tell you a little bit about donuts, okay? Donuts were invented in Holland back in the 16th century, and the the donut. Very interesting history. They were called oily cakes because they're oily cakes, okay, not donuts originally. And in fact, up in New York in that area, there are places they still call them oily cakes because of that Dutch heritage, excuse me, New Amsterdam, the Dutch settled into there. And a, a, a woman invented the donut, came up with the idea of the donut, and either she made them so small that they looked like little nuts, or she filled the center part, which was the last part to get cooked, she filled that center part with, with hazelnuts, is the story, so they became dough and nuts, or doughnuts. She had a son who was a sea captain. This part is true. Now, she had a son who was a sea captain. That part's true. He would, uh, he would have doughnuts on his ship. He'd have the ship's cook make up the donuts just as his mother had done. One of the stories about how the hole got in the donut was that he would uh, be eating his donut as he's steering the ship, and one day a wave hit the ship and he fell over. And when he got up, his donut was stuck on you know how the little spokes on the wheel? His donut was stuck on the thing. So then he started ordering the cook to put holes in, and he would put his donuts on the spokes so he could eat his donuts as he steered. I like that story, so that's the only one out version I'm going to share with you. Okay? Well, you notice I wait until my wife wasn't here to do this. The pilgrims, who had lived in England but then moved over to Holland before coming to the New World, brought the donuts with them into the New World. So that's why up in the Northeast, donuts were quite the thing during world war one had quite a discussion about this this morning during world war one the salvation army served donuts to the soldiers and the soldiers became known as what doughboys okay and the people serving serving the donuts became known know as what the women serving the donuts to the soldiers were known as what Donut dollies. You should know that because we have a Vietnam War era donut dolly who is a member of our church joined a couple of years ago. So Holly Watts. So, anyways, eventually I need to finish. Eventually, the donuts kind of took over in this country, and, and, and guess what the most popular donut is? Glaze. Exactly. If you're a visitor here this morning, this doesn't happen every week. Okay, I'll do that. I only, I've only used two myself today. The rest of them I gave during the fellowship time. Donuts and pork rinds, that's all you need. So anyways, I'm sitting there. I just gave you all this useless facts. Night after night making these things, and I'm thinking about the hole and the cake, the donut hole and the donut around it. And I start to think about, isn't that how one way that I can look at my relationship with God? That when, when I'm in Christ, I am surrounded By the glory of Christ. Uh, Put that donut up there. Yeah, there you go. That's the way a donut's supposed to look. God surrounds us with his glory, with his grace, with his love. And we, according to the scriptures in the Bible, all the places that tell us to be perfect, but then there are plenty of scriptures that also say there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. That all of our works are as filthy rags in comparison to the glory of God. And I thought that hole in the middle, that's my works. That is, that is everything that I've ever done by myself, of myself, for myself. It's that whole. It has no definition. It has nothing to define it as an entity without the donut around it. And my life has nothing to define it unless God is surrounding me with his grace. That father who embraces his son, who is now not a servant, is not lost, is not eating with the pigs, but is his son. And that's what God has done for me. He has embraced me. And all my works, I can take all this glory in them, but they are nothing compared to what God has done for me and you and even those who have set themselves as as enemies against him. And I could show you, I could say a minute ago I had the donut hole here but the doughnut's gone, do you see the hole? That square inch or so of emptiness is indistinguishable. You can't identify it. It's the recognition that we have that we believe that for a human to do something of eternal value and worth, it must be on the foundation of Jesus Christ and with God's grace surrounding us, when we go it alone, everything that we accomplish turns to nothing. Isaiah says that, Jeremiah says that, the grass withers, you know, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is forever. Be ye perfect. So what does all this mean in light of that? You know, the, the Methodist movement was really all about this topic. John Wesley said it was the grand deposit of the Methodist movement that we would remind people of sanctification and holiness. But the first part of Wesley's life, he tried to be perfect, just like I was talking about. He tried that until one day he had an experience of of, of God that transformed his understanding of who God was. And then he wanted to go out and tell people, you know what? You can live a life of joy. You can live a life in Christ. You can live a life of good works in Christ. And you can be free to know that you have been saved. Because God's Holy Spirit will be with you. And anything that you do is not your work if it's done in him. But it's the work of God through you. And you don't have to prove yourself to God. All you have to do is surrender to him. Give yourself over to him. I truly don't worry too much about, oh, gee, how many good works have I done today? You know, I, I, I keep a list of visits, and I keep a list of certain things and all, too. But in terms of whether or not God approves of me or whether or not I am saved, I don't worry about that anymore. And my wife has helped communicate to me the message of God that I don't need to be perfect because she tells me over and over, you know you're not perfect, you know. She's an evangelist for God. But I've been relieved of that need to be perfect and perfect in people's eyes. Uh, last thing I'll, I'll say about that and then I'll stop. You know how freeing it is? Sometimes people say, gee, I would never preach. You know, uh, I, Speaking in public is said to be the number one fear that people have. People would rather go, go swim in a, in, a, in a dung pool than to get up and preach before people. So people will say, I just don't know how you do it well, this is how you do it. Here's the key. You stop worrying about what everybody else is going to think. You don't spend the whole week trying to craft everything to impress people with you, but trying to craft it to impress people with God and with Jesus Christ. For he alone is complete. And if I'm going to be complete, it has to be in him. In fact, Paul says that, Colossians 2.10. We are complete in him. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are so many ways the Bible tries to break through to tell us. Surrender. And know the love and grace and joy of God and the freedom that it brings to you. And stop worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. Praise God for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he offers us opportunities to make decisions and to have those times that day when I ran up to get baptized. The day I was there, I went forward when that uh, young African-American preacher finished. I went forward and I dedicated my life anew to Jesus Christ Three kids went down to the pond that was frozen. They broke the ice. I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. And they were baptized that day. So moved were they by that. We have the same opportunity every week. I don't have a frozen pond for you, but we do have a, a, a rail here that you can come to and you can pray at and you can you can uh, talk to God. You're not talking to me. This isn't for me. It isn't for the church. It's for you and God to have that conversation, or go home this afternoon and have that conversation on your knees, by your bed, or wherever it may be. But have the conversation with God that he would free you, that you might serve him with joy and gladness. And amen. Let us go in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ with the full expectation that when he appears, we shall be made perfect, complete, like him, and that we shall for all of eternity Know the joy of the glory and the grace of our eternal God. Go in his peace. Know his way and follow it. Amen.